For a final time, I invite you to open to the book of Ecclesiastes, verse 12, I mean, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 9 to 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Father, we ask now that as we consider these upright words of truth that you would give us insight by your Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we come now to the the final words of the book of Ecclesiastes. And as we've heard much about living life under the sun in these 12 chapters, however, there was one main theme, and that was the vanity of life. It's mentioned 27 times. In 27 verses, about 27 plus times, the first chapter opens with it in verse 2, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And then the last chapter, here, chapter 12 in verse 8, it concludes with vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Life under the sun, that is, life without God, is empty. It's vanity. It is pointless. It is useless, it is absurd, it is meaningless, it is vanity, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Solomon has taught us many, many things, but one thing is obvious, life itself is futile when you don't know the key to living. Solomon is literally saying, your life is a waste if you die without knowing what it was all about. Oh, we fill our lives with many things, many enjoyable things, many things that are fine to fill our life with. But if we don't know the key to living, our life has been a waste. And so that is why Solomon meticulously and painstakingly searched for life's true meaning. He, after all the searching... We even come to the end of the book now, after all his hard work, and we still read the words, vanity of vanities. And at this point in our study, that is the end of it, it, these words should make a greater impression upon us now than they did at the beginning of the book. Solomon has made his case that life under the sun, life apart from God, is vain. You can't look to work, he said. You can't look to wealth. You cannot look to power to find meaning. You cannot look to pleasure. Why? Because work apart from God is vain. Wealth apart from God is vain. Pleasure apart from God is vain. Power apart from God is vain. Even death, he says, is vain apart from God. 
Phil Riken said, if there is no God, there is no judge. And if there is no judge, then there's no final judgment. And if there's no final judgment, there is no ultimate meaning to life. Nothing ever matters if there's no judgment. And so if you choose life apart from God, all you're left with is meaninglessness. An empty life full of toil at every turn. You're left with what Solomon has spelled out in chapters 1 to 10. You're left with the monotony of life, the certainty of death, the vanity of wisdom, and the futility of wealth. That is the story that Solomon has shared with us. That is the story of life under the sun. There is nothing new. What has been is what will be. Death is always looming. Wisdom gives us no ultimate advantage over the fool, and our wealth and the pleasures it affords leaves us feeling empty. And so what are we to do? What is the key to life? And Solomon doesn't leave us here groping in darkness trying to figure out the answer. As I said last week, he, he addresses Remember, he addresses the four problems of life found in chapters 1 to 10 with four pictures of life in chapters 11 and 12. He's already addressed the monotony of life in chapter 11 by saying life is an adventure. That's the picture he painted. He addressed the certainty of death in chapter 11 in the beginning of 12 by saying life is a gift to be enjoyed. That's what we learned last week. And now he addresses the vanity of wisdom and the futility of wealth. He does it by teaching us life is a school in verses 9 to 12, and life is a stewardship in verses 13 and 14. And so the point is vanity doesn't get the last word. Life can have meaning, and life can be enjoyed if we look at the right place for the remedy. And that's the very purpose of these final words. In addition to serving as a response to the four problems of life and the problem of vanity and wisdom of wealth, verses 9 to 12 also serve as the final conclusion of the whole book. It puts everything into perspective. One way to divide the passage, besides what I just said, life is a school and life is a stewardship, is to say it's divided under this two, these two headings, the teacher's discipline, that's verses 9 to 12, and the student's duty, verses 13 and 14. And, and, and when you look at that as the titles or the outline, you'll, you'll, you'll pick up on that the student's duty in verses 13 and 14 is the central point that's being made in the passage. In fact, you could say verses 13 and 14 are kind of the conclusion within the conclusion of this section, which summarizes the whole book. And so we're going to be looking at that central point, the student's duty. But before we do, we need to look at the teacher. We need to look at his work. And the focus here, verses 9 to 12, are not so much a summary of what Solomon wrote. But they're actually a summary of how he wrote it, how he went about his work. Life is indeed a school with many lessons to be learned. And here's Solomon, and it could possibly be an editor, it's written in the third person. We don't know. It'd still be the inspired word of God. An editor or Solomon, um, they kind of praise Solomon and tell us how Solomon went about teaching us all these lessons we've been learning. 
explaining the characteristics of his work as a teacher of God's truth. Look at verses 9 to 12. He says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. See, throughout this book, we have, we have followed Solomon in his quest for the meaning and purpose of life. That's been the goal. And when we saw him try all kinds of experiences... And, and, and all had all kinds of, uh, of attitudes and the way of looking at things. And, and, and through poetry and proverbs, what he does is he kind of shares that experience of the things he discovered. You see, Ecclesiastes isn't written as a personal memoir. It's not, it's not like a private journal that maybe someday somebody would find and be able to share. It, he wrote it with us in mind. He, he, he wrote it for our benefit. And Solomon put, possessed great wisdom, we know that. And he was a dispenser, though, also of great wisdom. It wasn't just for his own knowledge. He did it for us. He didn't keep it to himself. We're told that he is the preacher. He preached it. And, and he preached it in the way to make it understandable. Notice the characteristics here. First, he taught the people knowledge. That's what we're told in verse 9. The preacher also taught the people knowledge. Um, there must be substance to the teaching, um, or else there's nothing worthy of being taught. And so he taught them knowledge. But he, he also taught people. Now, that seems obvious. Who else are you going to teach? Uh, but he taught people. Uh, it's not really uh, a teaching until there's someone to learn from that. It's not enough to teach a subject. You might know all about a particular subject. You may be the expert in your field. But unless you're able to also communicate it to the mind of another, to their soul of the hearers, then it's all in vain. It's a waste. And so Solomon taught knowledge, and he taught knowledge to communicate to everyday people. Third, he taught studiously, he taught clearly, and he taught carefully. Verse 9, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Now, this implies that he, he labored at his study. He, he took the time. He did not merely just observe something and just off the top of his head, share what he was thinking. He, he thought it through. He thought before he spoke. He, he did his research. Some of it was through life experience. Um, and having all that money and all that fame and all that wisdom, he was able to experience things more than any of us could. And, and, but he, he, he did it through research. He weighed and he studied before making his point. He was studious. And not only that, he also arranged what he learned clearly. One scholar said there is a logical clarity to his teaching. He set his wisdom in order, arranging many Proverbs. And he was also very careful. He pondered, he searched out, and he carefully arranged all the knowledge he preached to the people. And that wasn't enough. He also demonstrates the importance of the words he used. He had a respect for language and how it's used. Look at verse 10. 
The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. And so Solomon labored to not only speak studiously, to not only speak clearly and carefully, he also wanted his words that he was sharing to be pleasing to those who were listening. The NIV says he picked just the right words. There was an artistry and an integrity to his presentation. His words were delightful, even as they were also upright. Now, the, the delight there expresses the beauty of his writing. Everyone recognizes, by the way, everyone recognizes the beauty of Solomon's writing. And for example, Thomas Wolfe, the famous American writer, says Ecclesiastes is the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. The greatest single piece of writing I have known. And so Solomon succeeded in searching for just the right word. He wrote delightfully. But it wasn't just beautiful. It was also truthful. Now we get to the most important characteristic. His words were upright and true. All the labor, all his careful, clear, and delightful arranging of his words were meant to emphasize for the purpose of emphasizing the truth. Without truth, his teaching would be in vain. Oh, it'd be beautiful, it'd be eloquent, but it would still be a lie. And and Solomon's goal was to tell the truth in the most careful, clear, and beautiful way he knew how. He was literally a great preacher. Now, the, the story's told of a little girl in church who asked her mother, Mommy, why, why does the pastor pray before his sermon? Mother replied, he's asking God to help him preach a really good, great sermon, say like Solomon. And then she asked another question, why doesn't God answer his prayer? (laughs) I'm not saying that was my daughter. (laughs) That would have never been said of Solomon. Every sermon, every word. There's wisdom, there was knowledge, it was studious, it was clear, it was careful, it was filled with delightful words, and they were all true. And yet that's not all. See, for a preacher, uh, an eloquent, well-organized sermon is just not enough. Truth is preached for a purpose. It's meant to spur you to action and give you spiritual security or a sense of confidence in God. And so we read in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Solomon spent so much time emphasizing his choice of words because they are like goads, they are like nails. Goads are ancient cattle prods. It's one of the tools of a shepherd's trade, a sharp stick that spurs a stubborn beast to keep moving. And nails, they refer to tent pegs. A shepherd would drive the tent pegs into the ground to keep the tent from blowing away and then giving the tent some stability and then the person inside the tent some security. And so that's what it was used for. So Solomon is saying, once the truth is driven into our minds, it's need to be remembered and giving us stability in life and giving us security in life. 
And so teaching and Solomon's preaching spurs us to action and, and holds us in place. Another way of putting this is to say that Scripture is sharp, that Scripture is penetrating. That's what Hebrews 4.12 says. And both goads and nails are sharp and penetrating. And Hebrews says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So you think of Ecclesiastes and maybe just all of Scripture, really. Think of it as God's cattle prod and pressing you on it and his tent peg pushing us to find lasting pleasure in his goodness. One writer says, steering us away from foolishness and towards godly wisdom, spurring us on to patience, contentment, humility, and joy in Christ. And when we forget God... Scripture goads us to remember our Creator. It's driving the tent peg of God's Word deep into our hearts to the piercing of our soul, reminding us that we will indeed someday leave this world, enter into His presence for all eternity, and enter into the presence of our Savior and friend, Jesus Christ. And so Solomon preached with the goal of spurring his hearers to action and giving them a place to securely stand. Well, all these delightful, true, and piercing words, clearly and carefully arranged that guide us and get nailed into our hearts, are given, we're told in verse 11, by who? By one shepherd. And the shepherd that Solomon refers to is God himself. And so think about it this way. Solomon's words were not only studious, they were not only clear, they were not only careful, they were not only delightful, they were not only truthful, spurring people to action and security, they were also inspired by God. I'm sure all the great poets can be studious, clear, careful, even delightful, even if they don't speak truth, maybe sometimes they do, but they cannot say that their words are breathed out by the Holy Spirit. They cannot say that their words are inspired by God, but that's what's true of these words. Peter says it this way, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Ecclesiastes is the very word of God. It's not just Solomon musing about things that he learned, even as helpful as that may be. It's God speaking to his people. And as Paul says, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so these are not just the musings of a skeptical philosopher. And they are part of the inspired, the infallible, the inerrant word of God. And so it's not enough to be like Thomas Wolfe and just admire them. Maybe Thomas Wolfe believes, I don't know. But my point is it's not enough to just admire them. They must literally penetrate our heart and they must guide our life. This book, Ecclesiastes, that we've studied, in fact, all the Bible, the books we're going to look at, James and others, must have pride of place in guiding us in our life. It must be our top priority. Nothing must rival it. Look what Solomon says in verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. 
Beyond God's word, of making of many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. He's warning us. He's warning us to not go beyond the written word of God. To to beware of words written, maybe eloquently, maybe delightfully, maybe beautifully, uh, the written words merely of men and women. It's not that we shouldn't read other books. In my ministry, I have read hundreds and hundreds of books. The point is the most important book for us to study is the Word of God. It's the Bible. Life is a school, Solomon's teaching. And he's saying your textbook is the Scripture, and your teacher is the Holy Spirit. That's life. There's always lessons to be learned. And it's from the Scripture that we receive the wisdom to understand the meaning of life and receive our action plan for for living life wisely. And in this instance, that action is spelled out for us in verses 13 and 14. The student's duty, that's our next point. Look at uh, verse 13. Life is a stewardship. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Everything Solomon studied, everything he carefully arranged and clearly taught with these delightful, true words, all of it has been heard. After diligently searching out the meaning of life, going through all those experiences that you remember that he went through, leaving no stone unturned, here is his conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. If your life and my life is going to count, if our lives are going to have meaning, if we're going to have purpose and we're going to have direction, we must fear God, we must keep his commandments, and we must do it knowing judgment is coming. And so Solomon summarizes everything we've studied by saying, or here is the final outcome of his, his research, we could say. His summary is God is awesome, the word is crucial, and judgment is inevitable. You see, beloved, when Solomon says, for this is the whole duty of man, the sentence literally reads, for this is the whole of man. Duty, yes, is implied, but we don't want to miss the larger point. Solomon is saying, this is what life is supposed to be all about. Fearing God, keeping his word, and preparing for judgment. And that's more than mere duty. Charles Bridges says, these things are our whole happiness in business. The total sum of all that concerns us. All that God requires of us. All that the Savior enjoins. All that the Holy Spirit teaches and works in us. And so the most important thing for you to do in this life is to fear God and keep his commandments. Now, the fear God, we've talked about it over and over. In chapter 3, he said we're to fear God because God's work is eternal. In chapter 5, he told us to fear God because he demands holy worship. Chapter 7, he told us to fear God in times of adversity as well as prosperity. 
Chapter 8, he told us that if we do fear God, it'll go well for us. And now we are told to fear God and obey him because one day we will stand before him in judgment. Now, the fear of God is that reverence and all we talked about. It may start with terror when you consider our God, but it's a fearness that translates into respect or awe of his power and his greatness. Uh, The person who fears the Lord will pay attention to his word and obey it. Not because of legalism, not to earn God's favor. I keep the command so this awesome God will love me. No, it's because God himself has chosen to love me. He's made that decision and now my response is one of obedience. It's an awe for who God is that must result in obedient living. Otherwise, it's a sham. Proverbs teaches the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but only only do fools despise wisdom and instruction. Solomon tells us here the reason that you're to fear God, and it's because he is ultimately our judge. And that's true. He's our judge. We should fear him, but he's not only our judge. He is also our all-knowing sovereign judge, and that makes a big difference difference. Nothing escapes his judgment. Look at verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's a scary verse. Every secret thing. I mean, you see my sin publicly. You don't have, you don't know the half of it, right? And I don't know that about you either, (laughs) Uh, every secret thing. See, someday we're going to stand before God and we'll give an accounting of both our deeds that were good and bad as well as the motives of our hearts. And so Solomon is saying, if you want to know the meaning of life, you got to begin with the judgment. You begin with the end in mind. Uh, See, the judgment must shape how you live today. Worship God and keep his word. And this verse, really, when you think about it, can be a summary of the purpose of the church, to teach you to fear God in Christ, keep your commandments in Christ, his commandments, prepare for your final judgment in Christ. That's why the church is here. Much more needs to be said, but the gist of it is found in those very words. Or let me put it this way. If someone were to ask me, why does St. Stephen exist? Think of all the answers you could give. Well, we've been here really long, so I'll well just keep going. I could say we exist, though. No, we're going to be more serious. Take it seriously. Um, we're going to exist for the worship of the triune God. That's a good answer. We could say we exist to teach about salvation. That's an important part. Help people grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we can teach people how to live for Christ, how to die to sin and live for Christ. Uh, uh, our bulletin, and I think our little handout in the thing, talks about us being the beacon on the hill. We, can, we, we exist to be a light to our community, the light of the gospel. That's a good answer. That's, that's a good one. To preach the word, that's the one I like. You know, we could say we exist for the glory of God and to enjoy him forever. Uh, we could say we exist to promote the love of God to our neighbor, which we should. All that is true. But here's what I think Solomon would say, or at least this is how I'm viewing it. We exist to prepare people to face God at death. We exist to help people die well. That's why we're here. 
Why can I say that? I can say that because one of our main purposes for existence is to help people to prepare to face God because Ecclesiastes ends with the final judgment. And because it does, because the final judgment is how it ends, it means that everything in life matters. This is why Phil Riken named his commentary, Why Everything Matters. There is life beyond the sun, and a day will come when the dead will be raised, and every person who ever lives will stand before God, he says. God has fixed a day, says Acts, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's Acts chapter 17. At the final judgment, everyone in this room will stand before King Jesus. And see, it will matter how you used your time, whether you wasted it on foolish pleasures or worked hard for the Lord. At that judgment, for every one of us, it'll matter what you do with your money, or you just spend it on yourself or for the kingdom of God. It'll matter what you do with your body, what your eyes saw, your hands touched, or your mouths spoke. Everything, everything will matter. See, the final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters. It's that everything does. What we did, how we did it, and why we did it, all has eternal significance. Because everything in the universe is subject to the final verdict of a righteous God who knows every secret. And so what matters most of all is the personal decision you make when it comes to Jesus Christ. See, in verse 14, Solomon talks about the the good shepherd, the one good shepherd. Well, that is Jesus Christ. The one good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, says John. And so the words that we read in Ecclesiastes are are, are really Jesus' words. Jesus is the one who calls us away from vanity, the vanity of life without God. Jesus is the one who calls us to find joy and meaning in his person. Jesus is the one who calls us to love God and keep his commandments. It's Jesus is the one who will someday call us to stand before him in judgment. And so if we come to him for salvation, if we believe that he came into this vain, meaningless world and suffered all its futility and frustration on our behalf, if we believe at the appointed time God's judgment fell upon him so that we can be forgiven, we can be pardoned, if we believe that his death paid the debt of our sin, if we believe his resurrection secured our future resurrection, if we acknowledge that his obedience to the word of God is imputed to us as our righteousness, if we understand that our keeping of God's commands is only possible because he has united us to himself and given us his spirit. If that's what you believe, if that's what you cherish, if that's what you understand the scripture talking about when it talks about salvation, then one day, everyone here who believes will stand before the righteous judge and you'll be looking into the eyes of a loving savior. That's the only way this passage can bring joy to your heart. See, because if you're here and none of that was true of you, if you just don't embrace Christ alone for your salvation, you will not be looking into the eyes 
of a loving Savior, but a righteous judge who's ready to pour out his wrath upon you. But in Christ, God delights in us. He delights in our works. Even though they are as filthy rags, they're never done perfectly, God delights in them in Christ. And so if you know Christ is your Savior, the day of judgment, you will hear this verdict, not guilty. If you know Christ and Him alone is your Savior, you will hear His judgment, you are forgiven. You will hear His ruling, well done, my good and faithful servant. This is the end of the matter. After all God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, we love God, and when we love God, we will naturally keep His commandments. Jesus said it, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so it's our job, it's my job, it's the job of the preacher to teach that message, to clearly and carefully and studiously, and occasionally I'll use delightfully beautiful words, to spur you on to follow Christ. To, to pin you down upon the solid rock of Christ and his word. And so if you remember anything from this series about what we learned from Solomon, remember this. Life is full of toil. It's full of trouble. At times, you will look with your fists in the air and say, it is meaningless. It is vain. It will leave you feeling empty and lost. All that is true. But here is the end of the matter. Life, true life, eternal life is found in knowing, loving, worshiping, and obeying Jesus according to his word. That's what we're called to believe. That's what we need to remain faithful to. That is our task. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. The reminder that it is of the futility of life. Even while we're enjoying the things you have graciously allowed us to enjoy, the food, the drink, even the material possessions, all these things, Father, help us to remember a day of judgment is coming and that we must stand before you and allow us by the power of your spirit to to live out your commandments, to proclaim this message to a lost and dark world in Christ's name. Amen.